Hi, and welcome to the House Hack Podcast. An exploration of modern work and how young professionals and businesses can work together in pursuit of the careers of tomorrow. Ryan and Charlie here. We're so glad you could join us. Let's get into it. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the House Hack Podcast. Hope you're having a good one. So today we're excited to be joined by Nikita Kandwala. So Nikita works in strategy and analytics at LinkedIn, is a World Economic Forum shaper and the co-founder of Unbox, a digital platform on a mission to empower young people to thrive in their careers. Nikita's on a personal mission to transform the relationship between talent education and opportunity by filling the real world learning gaps in education. So hopefully done you justice then, case that's an awesome intro. I'd love to ask you first off, in your own words, have you defined your personal mission? There's a lot about mission in there. Great first question. And thanks for having me guys. Very excited to be here and chat with you both. Um, to the question, I think actually mission is a an increasingly complex concept. I think a lot of people think of their mission as synonymous with like their true north and the one thing that they're striving for. Um, but in recent times, particularly in the in the last few weeks, just kind of reading more about how the world of work is changing and how we can prepare young people for it. I really feel like it's important to kind of instill this idea that actually your mission can be constantly changing. And at the end of the day, like we're so young, it almost should be constantly changing because it's kind of like how, you know, when you're doing, you have to pick your GCSEs in the UK or your A-levels and you're immediately kind of forced to specialize at a really young age. And at the end of the day, very few people know what it is they want to do at that age for the rest of their lives. So this is a very annoying answer to your question, Ryan, but I'm trying to say that I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea of having one mission. So I would say that my current mission is definitely around um, empowering as many young people as possible to pursue careers that are both fulfilling for them and impactful. Um, Amazing, love that. And of course, people can connect with you on LinkedIn, but I love to think about how working at LinkedIn connects to that personal mission of empowerment as well. Yeah, so not a lot of people know this because I think people think of LinkedIn as a social network or like a recruitment tool. But the mission of LinkedIn is to empower every member of the global workforce with economic opportunity. You can tell I've said that a lot of times, right? Um, and I have to say, like when I joined the company, that was a mission that I really resonated with um, because I think it is specific enough that it aligns with my personal mission to empower as many people as possible, regardless of where they come from, regardless of, you know, where they grew up, um, what kind of education they had. Um, but it also encompasses this idea that like talent and opportunity are not distributed equally. And that's something that I feel really strongly about um, for a bunch of different reasons that we can dive into later. But um, yeah, I think that's something that really shines through the company culture actually working there, which has been really, really cool to see because often that's a bit of a disconnect, I think. Um, yeah. Nice one. I think that's a pretty interesting point about bring into your, your daily work more than anything else i think looking at your your background beyond the amazing intro from ryan and thinking back to like south america getting involved in the startup scene getting involved in the investment scene as well there's quite a broad range of experience 
are there any kind of principles you followed or any kind of methodology or sort of mindsets you've had to attain that wealth of experience while also kind of refining what path you're actually on in life as well you're looking for the frameworks aren't you that's that's what you're here for a lot more the decision making framework to be honest I think that a lot of the decisions were um kind of conscious and were guided by like uh, a particular principle which I'll go into but it was never as deliberate as okay I need to experience x y and z in my early career because I want to go on to do A, B, and C or whatever. It was much more my guiding principle was if I can expose myself to as broad a range of careers and paths and sectors and roles when I'm this young, it's going to help me figure out what path I actually want to forge going forward. Um, And so with all the decisions I kind of made in my early career, um, so for example, like when I was in my third year of uni, because I studied languages, I had the opportunity to, to do a year abroad. And I made the decision to just like hit pause on actual higher education. Um, so it comes back to that piece about actually filling those real world learning gaps for myself in my educational journey. And I decided to just work for a year. Um, I was really lucky to actually have that opportunity be part of um, my course. Um, and so, yeah, I spent six months working at Startup Accelerator in Chile and then spent the other six months working at a VC fund in Argentina. Um, and it was that was also after I'd spent like a summer working at Rolls Royce. So I'd kind of like been on a pendulum from like the corporate world to the startup world to then like going a bit further to the investment world. And I think cumulatively, the experiences just showed me that one, it's so important to broaden your network when you're super young because you never know where your next opportunity is going to come from but also it helps you understand yourself so much to work in a lot of different environments but I have to say particularly in a startup environment and I'm sure that you guys subscribe to the same world you've given everything awesome that you do with house hack but I think that diversity of opportunity that you get just by being hands-on deck in a super chaotic hectic startup environment um, and particularly for me at Startup Chile, just working with founders from across the world, all working on different problems. It was just an unrivaled opportunity to get insight into some things I hated and some things I loved. Um, and basically what really gave me energy. So I'd say that that was my guiding principle and still is. Um, just optimizing for optionality is probably the best way to put it. And also optimizing for um, learning. Optimizing for optionality and learning. Love it. And in terms of then you kind of got two areas to this seven. You've got both working in different types of organizations. You've then got working in different roles in different organizations. Mm-hmm. And then you've also got the third element of working in different roles in different organizations in different countries as well, yeah. which is the kind of third element to it. I don't know if there's any like key learnings, key takeaways from that third element in particular of working abroad and working with people in entirely different cultures. They behave differently. And is there anything that I know you've taken away from that experience that you would bring into a culture where it's foreign? So maybe you might bring it from South America back into the UK. I'm so glad you asked this question because I think it's like incredibly relevant right now as we kind of move into such a globalized remote workforce, I think we've all read so much about this, right? Um, The fact that um, work is just like no longer the nine to five in the office um, kind of traditional scope of work that we've become used to and we've been kind of brought up and socialized to believe is the one way. 
Um, but actually, we're moving towards a world, in my opinion at least, where work is not just remote and kind of disaggregated um, in terms of where you're working, but also kind of decentralized in terms of the companies that you work for and the way that you actually craft a career. So I, you know, I don't know if you've heard of this idea of a portfolio career, but it's booming in terms of the number of young people who actually want to build a portfolio career, who it appeals to. Um, and I think traditionally it's been seen as something that is very like risky um, and almost synonymous with entrepreneurship and freelancing in a way. But I actually think it's something a lot more profound than that. And it's signaling a shift to a very different type of work. And to answer your question, like it comes back to that whole thing about experiencing what it's like to work with people from different cultures, from different nationalities, in different environments. We're all going to need to become so much more one able to do that and kind of eloquent in how to deal with different cultures and different um, kind of cultural norms and different languages and things like that. Um, and so for me personally, like going to South America, I experienced a lot of different, um, yeah, let's say a lot of different kind of cultural norms. Obviously, like I am pretty fluent in Spanish, but there was still some kind of language barriers there. Um, but also, you know, face stuff like racism and sexism in the workplace that I just like hadn't experienced to such an extent in the UK. Um, and I think learning how to deal with those things in different environments is such an important part of the workforce that we're moving into. So I would definitely encourage anyone who's listening, like if you have the opportunity to, um, it's a massive privilege in and of itself to be able to work abroad. But if you do have the um, opportunity to even work with people from completely different backgrounds, like grab it with both hands because it really pays dividends um, down the line. Awesome. I think that's some pretty solid advice. I think picking up on that point of building a portfolio career, dare I say you've already done it and are currently doing it right now with what you do. So within that, there's almost that nine to five and that five to nine that I know we spoke about previously. And I'm just wondering, for one, balance is obviously the question most people will ask of how does it bring balance? But for two, which elements of both do you find most joyful and give you the energy that you want out of life? And how do you combine that to draw equal energy from each other? Because I know that from my experience when I was working, even only like 15, 20 hours a week part-time and then doing house hack on the side, even though it was only 15, 20 hours, for me, it would like take away the energy from the startup so I don't know if there's a similar thing with yourself or you think it kind of gives you the energy for the startup instead yeah it's such a great question and I, I do actually want to hear more about both from your perspective Charlie and also Ryan like your your cert uni right so how you're kind of uh, is that right or did I mess up uh, we, are, we are both graduates both grads oh yeah, my gosh yeah. what did I think that you were still at uni <laughs> I thought you were graduating this year I don't know why I thought okay sorry I mean um, we are graduating physically this year yeah the let's moment of the ceremony um, so that's fine but okay <laughs> but to be honest like here from both of you as well like when you were still at uni and doing house hack because you started it in April 2020 right I think um how you found actually balancing the uni work and doing finals with um doing like house hack and kind of growing it because I think Obviously, it's different being in uni and having a full-time job and having a startup. And I think balance is such an important thing to address because the just the 
this explosion of like side hustle culture is something that really pains me a little bit because I think it's incredible that people are being supported and there are so many more resources and capital to enable people to kind of pursue what they're really passionate about and to build businesses on the side and kind of give themselves you know other streams of income to get that stability but at the same time I feel like we're moving into a world particularly with social media and stuff where it feels like everyone around you has a side hustle or has a business and particularly in a year that's been as difficult let's be honest as the past year has been for everyone I think it's really important to kind of reiterate the fact that you don't have to have figured out what your lifelong eternal passion is by the age of 22 or 25 or 30 or 50 like it's it's such an iterative process and I think we need to be better at encouraging people to find balance in their everyday through I came across this idea of micro passions um, recently and it's the idea that if you can find little things within your daily life and your whether it's your job or your startup or your uni work that give you that like little bars of motivation and kind of encourage you to get out of bed in the morning or get you into your flow state those things should be prioritized in terms of like what we think about when we schedule our day and when we think about whether we should say yes or no to opportunities rather than trying to expend all of our energy into chasing after or figuring out what this one true north guiding star thing is for us so that's the way I think about it at least and to be honest that's kind of an attitude that I've only developed recently because I've realized how toxic this whole um and kind of how pressurized the situation is becoming for young people. So I'm really keen to hear what you guys think as well about that, given that you were also side hustlers and now you're kind of going into this full time, how you made that decision and how you still kind of find that balance in your days. Yeah, it's a weird one, right? Because the, the thing I always repeat or say when I'm talking to people about house act, when I'm talking to clients, whatever it is, is that, there was a gap between April and June when it was exams and then it got to June and Charlie and I were like, right, let's you know dive in. Let's make it the business. We had a bit of traction. Let's go. But it was never that like black and white kind of thing. It was just a kind of organic process. If I remember, it didn't just click and it happened. It was something that kind of happened bit by bit by bit. And then, you know, maybe there was a defining moment, you know, maybe when we incorporated the business or whatever, kind of call it we want, but there wasn't a defining moment. There wasn't that, one thing that happened and then the whole paradigm shifted and now I believe I'm an entrepreneur I kind of still don't really have that identity anyway and it's a weird one but I think it's also as you rightly say something to be cautious of that kind of side hustle culture that kind of glorification of entrepreneurship because it's something that I think although has incredible benefits is also something that is a symptom of a society that maybe isn't quite supporting everyone you know not everyone has the facilities to be an entrepreneur straight out of uni not everyone has the support system the privilege etc on the flip side of it if you have to start running three side hustles to just get an income to live that society is not providing for everybody on the flip side if you as a society provide the governance, the, the culture, like you say, the capital, the resources to allow people to grow side hustles and use technology as we can scale businesses much faster than we used to into million dollar businesses within a year, within two years, 
And that's incredible. And we should be encouraging that. So there's so many different sides to it and there's no one right answer. But yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of challenges around the kind of side hustle entrepreneur type culture. Um, and it does, I think the final point I'll say, it does unfortunately conflict directly with how social works and the kind of online life of I'm only going to show the good stuff because that's exactly what being someone with your own business, with your own side hustle, your own successful project, whatever, that's exactly what it's like. You know, we will share when we get the new business, when, you know, LinkedIn, I am thrilled to announce is the thing that I see the most. But actually what I don't see is actually I'm having a shit day today. And what I don't see is actually, I actually can't be bothered to do this next five hours of Zoom calls back to back or insert whatever thing it is for you we don't see that and because of it it pushes the perception of running your own side hustle your own business in the direction of hey it's easy and also it's the best thing ever and i'm going to be successful straight away kind of statistics show that's probably not true right so yeah there's so many different thoughts there to, to unpack child and what you're thinking i definitely agree with you i'm pretty sure that's fair like it's definitely a, a tough bringing back to the question, like choice to make in the first instance of going full-time on it from it being part-time thing. I guess for me, perhaps there's more perspective in this and that I was like, doing two other roles at the same time throughout the summer. And I, in fact, spoke to one of them, the one I worked at uh, a day a week. And I said, hey, look, this business is really starting to get traction here, starting to take off a little bit. And I guess there probably was more of a defining moment in my head. And I think it was where we'd not necessarily been paid yet, but received our first like large sum of money for a talent challenge that we had in December. Like we hadn't yet been paid for it, but because the expectation was there and we'd sent across a proposal for it, my head was like, well, okay, this is going, this is starting to, to really kick off here. It needs the full attention of my own. So that's when I started having the conversation and from then, I gave myself a month with them to wrap it up and to move it across into something that I could then hand over to the next person to replace me as well. So I was always thinking, how could I help this business without me as well? And it kind of enabled me to then learn how to do handover documents, how to teach other people at the same time. But that choice is never black and white. It's always when you want to go for it, you go for it. But I think the risk is a lot lower than people think it is. Like if you mess it up, you can always go back to the same place you had before. It's no stress. And more often than not, because you've believed in yourself and taken that next step, you're really sought after in the market more than anything else because people realize that you can back yourself and go out there and do it. So my advice would be that it's never as risky as you think it is. But that could be because I'm speaking from a position of privilege and living at my parents' house for right now. So that probably helps. But I think a lot of us have that option, yet we don't realize it. And perhaps that is a space in which you can make the most of it as well. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It is interesting. And I think the, I'm just trying to find it like, through my phone. I can't find it, but someone mentioned, I think it was on Twitter. It's like young people are, majority of them are, are time billionaires in terms of the number of seconds they make a year, whatever, th 31 years is a billion seconds or something along that line. I can't remember. And putting that into perspective, I think it's exactly what you just said, right? Like you can, at a young age, take an unbelievable amount of risk wake up five seven ten fifteen years later and still have 
a hell of a lot of time left. Um, you know, we were talking about it, Charlie recently with, with Bob about winning in the second half. And he's like, I've got 20 years of my career left, the second half of my career, 30 years, whatever it is. And we've got almost double that, you know? So that kind of perspective of, of youth and risk is, is interesting. Yeah, no, I think what you both said is really interesting. I think there are two kind of key ideas here, right? There's the one of risk and there's the one of time. Ryan, I know exactly what you're talking about. I can't remember who said it either. I don't know if it was Naval, but um, I think that time is definitely our most precious resource, but I don't think that necessarily goes in hand in hand with risk because I think it's everyone's personal circumstance, again, particularly after this year when like youth unemployment was, I think it was like 27% or something in last April, like just really crazy high. Um, people's circumstances are so different. And also like we're all in a very lucky position, right? In many ways, but particularly in the fact that like we don't have dependents and we can almost like afford both economically and otherwise to kind of take certain risks of you know like we can try the entrepreneurship thing we can maybe go full-time but if it doesn't work out it'll be okay because we have savings or whatever it might be and that's why I think given that the majority of people are just not in that position that's why I think it's so important for us to do two things really one ensure that we have like the infrastructure in place for more young people and more diverse young people to actually take this path because the thing that frustrates me is that there's so much talent in that, you know, that group, that majority of young people and, you know, who have the hunger, who have the drive to make an impact, to build something, to just make something happen. Um, they have, you know, the ability, they have the intelligence, they have everything, but they just don't have the resources. They don't have the capital. They don't have the ability to take that risk. And I think that if we can provide those people with a, an almost de-risked environment such that they can experiment and they can try and they can test and they can validate and they can fail in an environment that is safe, that would be incredible. And that would also go, feel like getting a bit off piece here, but I'm passionate about this. Um, just like that would go such a long way to actually diversifying the startup ecosystem as well. Because, you know, if you give people that opportunity when they're young, then they feel like it's actually a feasible thing to do. And when they, like if and when they fail, as we know, the stats show us, it's actually like not that big a deal because they can go back and do something else. Um, and that's also why I think the portfolio career thing is, is super important, right? Because it's the same kind of mentality that you, that you instill um, in that respect. Um, yeah. It's an interesting one. It's really tough. I, it's like, it's not an easy fix at all, is it? Mm, yeah, I think it's, it's definitely a tougher one. I think even as simple as place, it's, being able to take that risk and being able to to take those steps even through having the financial capital to do it like right now i can i can take risks because i know i have the savings to cover it and i know i'm in a privileged place because of that so it's how can we bring that to more people is probably a very much a wider point as well and probably is not another kind of a link into it would be do you think everyone knows this is a reality and have been taught it throughout the education system that this is an ulterior path into life or an ulterior path afterwards or do you think that the university setup perhaps creates that almost treadmill of people walking into graduate jobs and then taking the next step in their career like it's a ladder like they have to do certain things by certain ages to define when they have to achieve them rather than perhaps an education system that focuses on you the individual and building a portfolio career 
do you think there's a link here to what is perhaps currently broken within the education system? Yes, now we're getting to the juicy part. Um, absolutely. And this is something else I feel very strongly about, right? In a system like higher ed, let's take the UK, for example, because that's kind of the system that we've gone through. Um, you know, incentives are fundamentally misaligned, right? It is within a university's highest interest to ensure that their employment outcomes and the paths that their um, graduates take are of a certain caliber, in closed inverted commas, um, that they're going to the Goldman's of the world or the McKinsey's of the world, or you know the, the magic circle law firms, right? Because that then fuels their cycle of students believing that in order to be successful in the traditional sense of the word, they need to actually get that stamp on their resume or their CV or whatever, if they want to have that same kind of success. Um, and as a result, there is no place within that kind of three or four year degree journey where young people are actually encouraged to not even take an alternative route, but to even explore the fact that there is not just one, but many alternative routes. And this was, for example, like a massive problem that me and my co-founder identified when we were at university. Um, we realized that, you know, we were both, again, very lucky to have had opportunities in the startup ecosystem. But it was so weird that like no one on campus was talking about it. We were like, what is happening here? There's this massive disconnect. There's this incredible opportunity to work at a startup, to intern at a startup and learn an incredible amount with actually, without taking any risk, because obviously you're not starting up yourself. But instead, everyone is going down the like well-trodden corporate path or the law path or the, as we like to call it, the golden trio of finance, bank, finance, consulting and law. Um, and I think that, you know, career services add to this problem, right? Because, again, they are very antiquated in their thinking and they believe that the only way to ensure success for their graduates and to fuel that cycle of more people coming into their universities they need to get people onto these same um, treadmills, as you said, Charlie, which are the corporate ones. And as a result, I don't think there's space in the system right now for alternative paths to flourish. And you need to find like nifty ways of doing it, right? Because also, if you think about the, the side of the labor market, right? Uh, let's take startups again as an example, just because that's what we're closest with. At the end of the day, startups don't have the resources, right? They don't have the capital to go to these like crazy wine and dine affairs at some of the top universities in the UK to basically like poach students. They don't have that kind of capital. And as a result, students are only exposed unless they intentionally look further to this golden trio, right? And so I think it's a problem on both like the labor market side, but also the higher ed side. Um, and yeah, I think it's like crucially important that we create this um, two things. One, the awareness that these alternative paths exist and two, the ability for them to actually get experience in these alternative paths, um, which again is obviously what, what you guys are doing, which is brilliant. Certainly trying. Uh, and I think it's, it's about the kind of gatekeeping of opportunities in a way, or certainly the siloing or the kind of pushing people in a certain direction without maybe showing the options that are available, you know? So it's, it's such a difficult one because for example, on, on, on a university side, they will run a lot of careers first, right? Where they bring employers in to showcase what they, what they do, what those companies do to 
the students to the graduates or the newbie graduates. But then if in order to put that event on, the university needs to charge the businesses to come and do that, then there's only one direction that the price of those tables or those virtual showcase things, whatever it is, is going to go. It's going to go in the direction, probably in the direction of that magic triangle. It's going to go up. And so because of that, your startups, your smaller businesses are going to get frozen out. And so naturally within the market, everything gets pulled upwards. And so is then, is then the case of talent because then you'll get people thinking, well, if the biggest salaries are only available there, there and there, and all the exposure that I've had within a university setting is to these actually quite few, uh, quite a small number of companies on the whole, I think, is that have that kind of control across dictating what the narrative is around careers within the university higher education. It's no wonder that then people feel that there is that or there isn't an alternative and that a portfolio career or working in a startup or whatever it is, is the outlier because it's supposed to be perceived that way is what I'm trying to get at. But I think that the question that follows on from that entire thing is, well, who is responsible then for the education of individuals? Because we forget higher education are separate institutions. They're not government. But maybe it is the government who has that responsibility for educating individuals, which is why there's that relationship there between higher education. Yeah. Actually, is it individuals' responsibilities themselves to then, once they've reached the end of school, to dive in and educate themselves by learning, by getting jobs? Who's responsible? Right. So I think the answer to this question lies in us finding an answer to another question, right, which is, what is the pur- a very easy question, by the way. What is the purpose of education? Because I think in the context of this discussion, we've so far focused on this gap between education and employment, right? And how can you bridge that gap for a greater range of students such that they can get into careers that going back to the first thing, they do find both fulfilling and impactful. Um, and I think that it probably makes sense to focus on that for, for the purpose of this discussion. And if the case is, you know, the purpose of education in this respect is to prepare young people for a workforce that is rapidly changing, whilst also preparing them, let's be honest, for life, then I think, and maybe this is a bit of a cop-out answer, but again, like we should definitely have this discussion. It's a it's a combination, right? Like that this is such a fundamental part of society. And when I say fundamental part of society, I mean the whole mechanism of getting one generation into the labor market and prepared to be the next doctors and entrepreneurs and politicians and whatever it might be of you know the future. I mean, surely that's a challenge that rests on the shoulders of a bunch of different stakeholders. And no, I don't think it's actually fair to say that this responsibility lies on solely the shoulders of the individual. Because at the end of the day, like it's easy to say that. And yeah, sure, if you do a bit of research and if you expand your network, et cetera, et cetera, you're gonna have a better chance of knowing what those alternative routes are. But at the end of the day, that is also again, built on a system of, you know, certain privilege. And it's much easier for a kid who's gone to a private school and has then gone to Oxford 
to have a very strong network around them, right? And to be able to elevate themselves into certain positions that will give them the opportunity to get internships at Goldman or whatever bank or consulting firm. So I think this cycle is a pretty vicious one. And in order to break it, it requires a concerted collaborative effort between individuals, yes, willing to kind of see that there are alternatives and kind of wanting to to try out those alternatives. It also comes from higher education institutions themselves and how we can think about, okay, how do we realign the incentives of higher education institutions students themselves and the labor market and thirdly the government which to be honest over the past year has actually done a pretty good job with the kickstart scheme right which for for those who don't know the kickstart scheme is basically a way to get i think it's 16 to 25 year olds into um small medium smes basically small medium enterprises to get them basically on that first rung of the labor market the career ladder and i think it's a fantastic scheme but also, you know, I was at a roundtable the other day about this, like, it's not necessarily going to be continued post-COVID in a post-pandemic world, which is worrying to me, because I don't think this is an exclusively COVID-induced problem. I think that it's a fantastic first step. And again, we've talked about youth unemployment at a time when it's so high, it's so needed. But this is needed, you know, going forward for the next decade. I'm, yeah, I'm very much of the mind that if we can kind of align, and obviously it's, it's no easy feat, but if we can go some way to aligning the incentives of these three stakeholders, then yeah, we're going to have a much better chance at not only preparing young people for the workforce of tomorrow, but also just ensuring that like students have a better educational experience and one that allows, again, that talent and opportunity problem to kind of realign itself. Um, I'm curious to know what you guys think of that. Do you think that responsibility falls on one party in particular? There's a really interesting turn of phrase that we use very easily, which is the workplace of the future, which seems like we've already defined it when actually it's an unknown and a variable. And I think, in fact, that higher education institutions in particular are preparing us for the workplace of yesterday rather than the workplace of tomorrow. So... There's an element of that that really on our end, it's how can we prepare for something we don't know the outcome of? So mm. there's probably an education piece of educating higher education mm. to then be able to educate others on what the workplace of tomorrow looks like because they don't even know it themselves. They're just sort of walking their blind and sort of thinking that the past equals the future when it doesn't at all. So, so I have a follow-up question to that, Charlie. Do, do you think there is anyone who knows what it looks like? Or do you think that no one looks, no one knows what it looks like? And therefore, you know, that kind of leads to another discussion about, okay, what are the fundamental skills we should be teaching young people that are timeless, that regardless of what the future of work looks like, they'll be okay? If there is someone that knows it, put me in contact because that's a conversation worth having but I don't think there is because that is basically asking me do you think there's someone who knows how to protect the future and I think the answer is no there's people who have a best guess who are quite accurate and I believe that's kind of what we're trying to get through this podcast as well but I do think that the way to combat that is to go back to basics and think about individualized learning and particularly learning how to learn which I think is definitely underappreciated undervalued and so kind of within that there's a lot of focus on theory-based concepts at university. In fact, that's 
basically what all it is really they do chuck in at the odd placement year for a bit of practical experience but really it's kind of fend for yourself to get the actual experience that you need and to be able to apply these theories in real world so with that context in mind Nikita do you think that the leaders of tomorrow need more theory concept-based learning or more practical experience-based learning instead I think both um, I usually come down pretty hard on one side of this debate because I do think experiential learning, particularly in the world in which we live now, is the key to the questions that we've been asking ourselves today. But I don't think it's exclusively about project-based and real-world learning. I think theory is so important in underpinning that and filling in the gaps that do exist even when you have a real-world learning experience. Um, I come from like, obviously like Oxford, which has a very academic um, kind of, uh, what's the word, uh, reputation, obviously. And so that is probably feeding into my thinking as well. Um, I mean, when I was at university, I was like, oh man, I wish I could just kind of get out there and see what the world was like and understand how I could apply all of the theories I was learning about linguistics, for example, in real life. Understand, you know, what does linguistics look like in the political realm? What does it look like in the world of business, et cetera, et cetera. But that's not the way that the majority of university courses are taught. And I think that, yeah, it's, incredibly important that we we don't think of these things as mutually exclusive because I think only are we going to be successful at crafting a higher education system or even an education system itself um, that provides for everyone's learning needs and gives people the opportunities that they deserve the only way we're going to do that is by understanding that these things can't exist in isolation so I think that, yeah, there's no one best way to do it. But I think at the current moment, our education system places way too much emphasis on knowledge and theory and way too little focus is placed on um, application and practicalities and metacognition. Like, as you said, Charlie, learning how to learn, you know, learning how do I learn as an individual? And, you know, for me personally, project-based real-world learning might be the answer. But for you, Ryan, for you, Charlie, it might actually be theory-based learning. And so I think we need to carve out spaces within the system that actually cater to different people's learning needs. Um, because I think that's one of the another kind of key problem in the education system today, right? It's a one-size-fits-all approach, one that has dated back for centuries um, for various reasons that we don't obviously need to go into now, um, because that's a whole other discussion. But the point is that we need to start thinking, okay, how, what step changes can we make as well? Because I think we also think of this in a very like revolutionary way sometimes, but what step changes can we make to ensure that we are providing for everyone whilst also preparing our workforce for, yeah, with well, empowering them with the skills of tomorrow, as you said, Charlie, rather than the skills of yesterday. Yeah, I think that interdependence of the two is really, really important. I would perhaps add the element here that we're almost predefining success a little bit by assuming that the outcomes for everyone should be the same in that the future of tomorrow for you probably looks different than the future of tomorrow for me. So I think there's individualized success and individualized outcomes that perhaps affect the learning styles that are in play. And for example, here in terms of the independency, like my dad didn't even get his equivalent O-levels, A-levels, 
and then didn't even get a university either and started off as a bricklayer and worked his way up from 20 years old to now being the construction director of the largest house building firm in my county. So to go from that journey without any qualifications whatsoever, perhaps that's the, the past and that's only been done in the past, but I do see it in the present as well, even with people like our mentor, he's done the same kind of approach. But in the future, there's also room for that as well. Of like, perhaps some people just don't need the education in the same way that there is that solid base. Like I do agree that it's helpful, but there are quite a few examples that stand out in my mind of people who have rejected the education system entirely and then seen success through just purely based practical learning. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think yet another challenge, right, is that for a bunch of different like social, socioeconomic reasons, I'd say that have come together more and more today, even though like the cost of tuition is increasing like exponentially, we're seeing more young people believe that higher education is the right answer, basically. When actually, you're so right, Charlie, it's not the right answer or the best answer for a lot of students. And I think there are actually quite a lot of cool startups playing in the space of, you know, the 16 to 18 bracket. No, there are so many great, um, like White Hat, for example, it's called Multiverse now, I think, that provides really great apprenticeships for young people to get into the workforce um, and kind of give them that practical experience from the get-go. And yet there's still such a stigma in the majority of the UK that is attached to doing an apprenticeship rather than going to university and getting a traditional degree. And I think that's also something that needs to massively be destigmatized because we need those people who have the practical experience and who are kind of launching themselves into the workforce um, because often they have incredibly different and interesting and successful paths. However, as you, coming back to your point, Charlie, it's important that we start to reframe what we think success is because quite honestly, like success is not just getting to that like magic cycle law firm and becoming partner at the age of 30. I don't know anything about law, so if that's realistic, whatever. Um, but it can mean, you know, going from bricklayer at the age of 16 or 17 or 18 to the head of construction at, you know, at that firm um, 20 years later. Like everyone's journey is so unique. And I think we need to stop enforcing our societal expectations of what success is and therefore confining people's uniqueness into a box right we need to allow people to there you go it was gonna come it's coming to unbox themselves from from those societal expectations and actually give them an environment where they can explore where they can test where they can fail you know and you know we give that the appreciation it deserves so yeah, again, like it's not an easy problem to solve because this is years and decades of kind of also conditioning young people to believe that success looks a certain way. And quite frankly, it doesn't. Yeah, I, re I remember from what, from what you just said, something that, again, I don't remember where from, someone said in the week that the phrase, what got you here won't get you there. And I think it applies to education as well, right? So I remember a lot of people upon graduating uni, upon starting uni, would always say, why on earth did we do X, Y, Z at school? I'm never going to use it ever again. And it's like, yeah, well, you're not, but look at all those people over there who are doing that, whether it's about science, about maths, about 
um, engineering or arts or anything like that, whether all subjects are treated equally at a secondary primary level or whether we push people towards certain subjects or another, that's kind of not this conversation. What is, is that if you get through life and you realize that, oh, I'm not using trigonometry in my day-to-day life, I should have never done maths. It's like, yeah, but you've absorbed so much problem solving into your way of way of life. You don't even recognize those pathways that doing maths as a subject at an early age has connected up kind of thing. So I hope that makes sense in that what got you here is not going to get you there, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't have done that thing in the first place, right? It doesn't even, it doesn't invalidate school just like actually it doesn't invalidate higher education. Like the number of people, whether it's on social or just in a, in a keynote or whatever, who say, don't go to university, higher education is rubbish. Eight times out of 10, they've been to university, which is fine. Obviously they are just as qualified as anyone to say, don't do that. But then actually you're denying somebody something that you don't know about them. Right. right? So yeah, it's a really tough one. It is. This actually, what you said, Ryan, reminded me of something which I think is really um, interesting, which is that there's also an increasing trend towards stackable credentials which I think is a really cool concept and like I was talking to someone he's the talent director at uh, a really cool startup in London actually and he was telling me the story about his nephew who's about uh I don't know why that was so funny but sure um anyway um yeah he has a nephew that he was telling me about who's I think 17 or 18 and basically he was at this crossroads of deciding you know I'm finishing school do I want to go down the higher education route or do I want to, you know, go into work? Do I want to do something completely different? Um, but all the while in the back of his head, knowing that even if, like, if he didn't take a higher ed route, the one that we traditionally define as kind of not successful, but, well, you know, what is increasingly becoming the, the done thing, he was going to miss out on the credential at the end of the day, right? And so he soon realized that actually the main reason that he was even considering the higher ed path, even though it didn't align with the way that he learned and the way that he kind of wanted to spend the next three, four years, he was thinking about that because of the credential at the end of it. Anyway, so this guy I was talking to, he sat down with his nephew and was like, okay, what ways can we get around this such that you can actually get that kind of stamp at the end of the day, but also learn in a way that is aligned with your personal learning kind of uh, approach. And so what they did is they sat down together for like four hours and did loads of research um, and basically looked at the courses. I think he was interested in civil engineering. Uh, They looked at all of the courses from some of the top universities in the world, like MIT, Imperial, et cetera. And it was actually crazy, the amount of kind of public resources that these universities had online, whether it was exams or kind of lecture notes and stuff like that. And they basically hacked together a course for this kid um, that also integrated like uh, learning paths from whether it's LinkedIn Learning or Coursera or Udemy or whatever, such that he would kind of have those yeah, alternative credentials, let's call them, at the end of him doing this, I don't know, kind of six to 12 month as opposed to four year long degree. And I think that this is, this was so interesting to me because I'm hearing more and more stories like that. And not only that, but you were seeing these massive ed tech companies like Coursera, um, for example, is 
is really focusing in on this market of stackable credentials. And it shows that actually they may not necessarily be young people yet, but more and more people are thinking about, okay, how can I reskill myself for a workforce that is rapidly changing? You know, like by 2025, you guys have probably seen the stat, like 52% of people in the current workforce will need to be reskilled because that's how quickly skills are shifting. And most skills now have a shelf life of like less than five years, three to five years. So we can't expect young people to get one degree when they're 18 and then be able to use that degree and the learnings from it throughout the rest of their career. Like It doesn't make any sense with the world that we're living in. Um, and so I think, yeah, it's increasingly important to going back to your really early point, Charlie, not to just bridge the gap between knowledge based and kind of skill based learning, if we can call it that, or knowledge based and project based learning, but also show young people that there are alternative options out there in terms of the education that they actually kind of craft for themselves. Yeah, definitely. I think some really good points there across multiple different pathways. I think that one of creating your own and picking up the best pieces is really, really interesting. I mean, on my own experience throughout the pandemic, I did three online courses just in my final year of uni alongside just because why not? And for me, that allowed me to pick out certain courses, effectively like you would a module at university and combine them together and do them differently. Like we had one on social entrepreneurship, had another one on like finance 101, like from Harvard, and like another one from uh, coding as well, like HTML, CSS, and combine those different areas to kind of create your own course, which is really interesting, your own outcomes that you want as well. So it, it kind of, solves that problem of individualized success metrics because you're choosing rather than from a set criteria within a course you're defining your own course as well which is really quite empowering at the same time but i guess we're talking here about some of the solutions that do currently exist and we've mentioned quite a few of the kickstart schemes some of those aiming at the 16 to 18 year old market like what other startups areas are trying to cover different parts of the education sector and what do you think is missing or blaringly obvious that no one's really spotted here in terms of the problem with the education system i knew we were going to change the world today um <laughs> what is glaringly obvious that's missing well the thing about education as you both know is that when it comes to the startup space right it's super super saturated so I have to say, like, I know of some really cool startups across the spectrum, whether you're thinking about like K-12 education, whether you're thinking about higher education, whether you're thinking about this gap between education and employment, there are so many startups working across the gamut that are doing incredible work. So the good part of this is that there are a few parts of this problem that are being completely neglected, I think it's fair to say, at least in my opinion. Um, the thing is, I think because I came across this the other day, I, I can't remember who said it, um, but I, I think it might have been, um, yeah, I can't remember. Anyway, it's not important. Basically this idea that like everyone is interested in education. And the reason everyone is interested in education is because education is trying to prepare us for a future that we don't yet know exists. Again, to your earlier point, Charlie, like if we don't know what that future looks like, of course, people are going to be intrigued by how we craft the education system, right? Because 
we're trying to educate people for something that we have never seen before, essentially. Isn't it crazy that despite the fact that that's the case, our education system has stayed basically the same for decades and decades? Like, that is crazy to me. And so I think one of the biggest problems in the ecosystem right now is that specific approaches and frameworks and antiquated ways of thinking are basically cut and paste onto today's problems. And as a result, the amount of innovation that's happening in the education ecosystem is actually not that high, even though it's super saturated with startups who are trying to transform education for all. You know, that's everyone's mission. Like, great, okay, but what are you actually doing? And so I think to answer the second point of the question about what is glaringly missing that's obvious, at least from where I'm standing, I truly believe that we're moving into the era of the liquid workforce. And when I say the liquid workforce, I'm referring to this idea of, to kind of hop back to what we were talking about before, one, portfolio careers, but two, this decentralized workforce where people will build careers in a remote way where they are kind of hacking together, working like as a freelancer or whatever it may be for different companies at different times and utilizing different skills. And all throughout that career, they will be upskilling themselves continuously to learn new skills that one, maybe didn't even exist five years earlier, or two, are just more relevant to the role that they're currently occupying. And I think that too few people are thinking about this problem. And this is a problem that we are currently focused on at Unbox, and which a cool little startup that I came across recently called the Portfolio Collective, um, founded by a guy called Ben Legg, is also focused on. This idea that we are moving to this workforce, but it's actually happening a lot more rapidly than people are either choosing to believe or just are unaware of. So, you know, like, if you look at the currently like Gen Z, let's just take in the UK, one, because I know those stats, but it's also, you know, most relevant right now, 53% of Gen Z people in the UK want to start a business at some point in their career. And that's been like on the rise for the past number of years, but also the market for kind of portfolio careers and startups who are playing in this area is also massively increasing, um, as is the freelance market. So I think that this is an area that when you look at the gap between education and employment, there is definitely space for innovation here. And I would love to see more people kind of playing around with it because I think it's going to happen a lot sooner uh, than people realize, particularly with the advent of the passion economy and stuff like that as well. So with uh, the passion economy, the creator economy, we've got, universities we've got startups trying to attack every angle of education possible across every age group what does that mean that the education system is gonna look like like what's the future of that as a is it a less formalized system then are we basically saying that over time the institutions that currently hold the key almost as, as the kind of higher part of education outside of primary, secondary, is it then something that's going to have less power that actually maybe corporations will take on and individuals will then educate themselves through platforms or, or, or different skills and they'll, they'll kind of upskill themselves in a different way. Kind of what does the future of yeah the entire education system look like? 
easy. Um, obviously, that's a massive question. So I'm going to focus in, in on one area, which is earlier we talked about who the responsibility for education um, and particularly careers education should fall on, right? And Ryan, to answer your question, I think there's two parts of it, right? One is what will the education system look like in 10, 20, 50 years? And the other question is, what do we want that education system to look like in 10, 20, 50 years, right? Because I think we all have wild aspirations about that, but whether they're realistic is another question. And so I think that what we are going to see, not kind of at the K-12, like primary, secondary stage, um, gosh, I've been talking to a lot of Americans when I said K-12, um, but actually going as people start building their careers and advancing in the workforce, in terms of that kind of education, I think we're going to see individuals and corporations have a lot more agency over their employees and their own learning. And I think that that is a very natural shift. And maybe it will mean that we do see a decrease in the number of young people going into higher education. I mean, there are a bunch of different reasons that might occur, right? Tuition costs being one of them, but also, you know, if you have platforms in place that are providing a an engaging enough learning experience that actually caters to individuals' personalized needs, as opposed to taking a one-size-fits-all approach as the current education system does, that spells an incredible amount of opportunity for young people, right? For young people, for older people, for people like in the midst of their careers. And so I think we will see, and I, I do hope to see this, more individuals taking ownership over their own learning experience throughout their careers. I think that's really exciting. And I think that there are more and more um, both corporate solutions and startup solutions to this. So I'm really curious to see how that actually plays out and how people create an experience that is truly innovative so, for example, one thing like random thought I was having the other day is why are all ed tech platforms focused on courses? You know, like why why do we learn online in courses? Um, how can we basically break courses apart such that people could essentially similar to the story I told you guys about um, that that 18 year old who hacked together his uni course? Like, why can't we do that for learning in general? You know, I might, I have a background in linguistics. I'm currently a data analyst and I might want to move into product management. I mean, it's kind of wild, you know, or it's a little bit wild. It's not that wild. Um, but how do I personally, if say no one else has ever made this shift, clearly people are going to have done it in the past, but maybe not that many and probably no one that I know. If I could hack together a bunch of different videos or audio content or podcasts or like learning paths from Udemy or Coursera or LinkedIn Learning, that would make my learning experience one, one that I had agency over crafting, two, probably more, you know, engaging for me because the content would be varied and also I'd had a part in creating it. And three, my learning outcomes would also probably be better because of those two first factors, right? So I think that's a particular area I've been thinking about recently. Um, that's really interesting. But I also want to know what you two think, because I think this is a massive question. Um, and I know that you both have a lot of thoughts around it as well. I think this is really, really interesting, isn't it? Like individualized learning pathways, which 
I think links a lot to building your personal brand because when you build your own specific skill stack and skill set that's unique and different, if you merely only communicate it, you stand out in the market, you become a different person. And it links in to the freelancer, it links into the entrepreneurship again of you have a unique skill set, you can sell it, you can do things differently. And for me, like that's a pretty empowering approach for everyone to then have that pathway that's right for them. I'd even go kind of one step further on the, the angle of courses without even thinking like courses are almost the archaic concept of the universities and even just splitting them into mon- modules. That's still a university degree with extra steps, but can't you go one step further and just convey and teach information in a new way? And I guess one of the things we're trying to do through HouseHack is give people those learning opportunities to do that as well and actually learn through experience through a system that teaches them to do it while they're actually on a live project like that's pretty awesome i think having that as a real experience that you can then show and tell but also getting real skills in the process is super super key the one element that i think is really interesting that keeps people stuck to courses stuck to higher education as it currently exists is the idea that you are within a tribe that you are within a people that reinforce your views and actually are together in achieving the same outcomes to say if I sign up for as I did international business course okay around people that are thinking the same the more we take an individualized approach to our learning the more disconnected we become from others so I think there's perhaps a huge opportunity as well to then give these individual pathways but to find common themes across them and link people together who are doing really cool stuff and would really enjoy communicating engaging each other to achieve those goals and hold them accountable to do it as well oh I think a startup idea is brewing guys um yeah I think you touched on the social element of learning which is again so so important and becoming even more so in this remote world right so how can the question in my mind is you know how can you create a also I really love this idea of a skill stack um I think it sounds really cool um but you should copyright that, by the way. Um, but how can you create an environment where people can, as you said, Charlie, create a personalized skill stack? But how can you potentially blend that with like a cohort-based course model? Because these are again becoming increasingly popular, right? But I, I, I always have a slight reservation about them. You know, when you look at On Deck, for example, um, startup in the US that's trying to be like YCX Stanford. Um, you think people are so engaged in these learning experiences. How much of it is to do with the collaborative, like social learning aspect and how much of it is to do with the course content? But also like, if you have a cohort based course, does it mean that it will always, it will never be as scalable as a Coursera or a Udemy? You know, that's my question. Can you combine those two things in such a way where you have the individualization, but you also have the social learning experience? Yes. Yeah, it's a weird one. And it's something that is only going to play out over time, I think, too. And I think the the blended approach where you have something that is more personalized, something that is curatable, personal, where you're engaging with people on a social level, but also with people who are from a different background, skill set, 
understanding things in a different way, different styles of learning, it's only going to be beneficial to the learning experience. I think one thing we haven't quite covered that I'm going to just throw into the mix as we approach the end is lifelong learning. And actually the course model, the university model, everything currently points towards you getting a skill and then it's done or you get a qualification and then it's done. Like that's great, but that's not the truth. Like you're not done being a linguist. You're not done being a business person. You're not done being an accountant. You don't get to a certain stage and that's it. In the instance of a university, you just get the degree. You, you pass, you, you, you get the requirements, the criteria. And once you've hit that, we all collectively agree that you are that thing, which is fine. But what have I done since leaving that, leaving that management degree? Well, I've tried to apply some of those things, starting house hack, et cetera, which is probably done just as much for me calling myself somebody who understands management as the last three years of studying it on that theoretical side. So you do need both. You do need the approach where you're talking to other people or doing learning together. You do then also need that lifelong approach, I think, where you're taking a, a broader, longer term view as far as you can on how your skills stack. Yes, but also how they stack over time. Right. You know, an analogy that popped into my head as you were saying that, right? Because I think it's so important, particularly mm. with the reskilling piece we were discussing earlier. It's like we should be thinking of skills as Lego, right? not just because, you know, we stack them on top of each other and it kind of always looks different depending on who's making it, but also because each Lego piece looks different, right? And what I mean by that is, Ryan, you um, touched on how, okay, if I learn a skill at university, for example, or at school, which is like, I don't know, whatever, you know, how to write an essay or how to think critically, then I go out into the workplace and I start to learn how to actually apply that skill that Lego piece is going to look very different to the one that I got when studying at university, right? Because it's the difference between the theory and the practical. Then maybe I go start my own business and I learned that actually the critical thinking that I'd learned to do in university and in the workplace was totally different from the kind of critical thinking I needed to do as an entrepreneur. And mm -hmm. so then I stack another Lego piece on that again, it's really different and it results in this, I guess this dynamic sort of, I don't know what people call the, like what's a Lego when you put it together? Like a shape? A set. A set? Yeah. Let's, call it, let's just call it a Lego skill stack guys. But ultimately it results in a Lego skill stack that looks totally different for you and me and Charlie. Um, mm. And I think that's so cool, but it also means that we need to create that space. That means that lifelong learning is not just stacking up one skill after another and topping them up but it's about adding on different types of that one skill and understanding when that skill is no longer relevant and when you may have to like weave in a different skill and stack another block. So I think that's quite an interesting way to think about it potentially. Yeah, it makes me think about like the emotional attachment to skills as well. So if you get to a, a, an age or you get to a certain level of investment in yourself and your own education, your own skill stack and the world is telling you that that is no longer relevant, that that is not going to serve you for the next five, 10, 15 years. That sucks, right? Like that's emotionally a massive blow. No. Um, but yeah, I guess that's what it's about, right? It's about having the ability to pick up the instruction manual 
and then read how the Legos go together to build that new stack, that new set, or to put the same pieces together in a different way. You know, you can analogize forever with that. I love that. Um, but yeah, Nikita, we've come to the end of our time together. People can, of course, find you on LinkedIn. I've really enjoyed our chat. I hope you have as well. Yeah, it was awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. I think we got we got some way to putting the world to rights, but I think it requires maybe a few more conversations. Yeah, we didn't quite fix education, but we certainly got some way. So yeah, thank you so much. Awesome. We laid down the first Lego bricks for it. Yeah, if you like. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care of yourselves. That's it for today from the House Hack Podcast. The best place to find us is LinkedIn at House Hack Events, the company page, and personally on LinkedIn at Ryan McGee and Real Charlie Rogers. We really appreciate your listening support. Leave us a review if you enjoyed our episode, and we'll see you the next one.